Hello and welcome to Off Grid with me, Dave. And me, Void. Hello. Yes, it's the Not Really About Crosswords podcast. We found a cryptic crossword loitering suspiciously around the back of the newspaper, took it down the station and made it tell us everything. So now we've each got a favourite word to talk about and a clue we liked, which we'll explain to you as we go along. But if you're not a cryptic crossword connoisseur, don't worry, don't panic, it's fine. You don't need to know anything about crosswords to enjoy this podcast. Well, so we hope. But if you are into crosswords and you want to solve along with us, then check out the Independence Cryptic Crossword Puzzle number 11011 by Gila from Thursday, January the 27th, 2022. Uh, so pause the podcast, go and solve that. We'll link to it in the blog, but you may have to select the date from their interface because they've broken their permalinks. Why do you do updates, people? Why? Why? And also, are you finished now? <laughs> we'll have our customary mini quiz inspired by the puzzle. And you can't have a quiz without general knowledge. So, General, how are you? Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing all right. Well, I went to the dentist this morning, but hey, let's move on. <laughs> this morning, not 2.30? Well, I was <sighs> tempted. I thought I'd skip over that. If we uh, did this afternoon, I might have. Yeah, anyway. It was t- too early, not 2.30. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's move on to the clues then. We'll tell you our three favourite clues, read them out to you now, and then explain them later on. So, General, what was your favourite clue, please? Yeah, my favourite clue was Ted Across, which was a tech gadget, mini perhaps, containing a tracking device. And that's two letters and then seven letters. And yours, Dave? I went for 13 Across, which said, Before the sign to stop, absolutely nothing is produced. That's eight letters. What about yours? I stayed right at the top of the puzzle, one across. In a war, they oddly fight, bringing up unrelated issues. Twelve letters. Right, you can have a think about that. We'll tell you how it all works later on. But for now, General, tell us your favourite word from the puzzle and what it made you think about, please. Okay, I wanted to talk about red letter, uh, the answer to sit down, although really it was the clue for sits down which got me thinking because it says a uh, special dog and then also involves a red setter and that reminded me of mark kermode's review of clifford the big red dog recently um when he said uh, and i quote firstly clifford is too big for this story to work okay in a live action film clifford is too big so you see clifford in the room clifford's not just going to mess the room up he's going to destroy the room okay it's a dog that's that big that's the end of that and given that he did that on the radio and motioned, I don't think I need to apologise for motioning <laughs> and doing something that doesn't work in an audio format. But uh, yeah, that just made me made me laugh. He's a very serious objection to the size of this dog. And then that got me thinking about how cartoons and animations in general can do things that live action can't. And uh, found online Mark O'Donnell, animator, has O'Donnell's Laws of Cartoon Motion, which are all about how physics works in cartoons, which is different from the real world. Okay. <laughs> so things like anybody suspended in space will remain suspended in space until made aware of its situation. 
A character steps off a cliff but remains in midair until looking down, then the familiar principle of 32 feet per second per second takes over. So we all know that one. Uh, however, all principles of gravity are negated by fear. Here's another one. And then I know you've talked before about cats on this podcast and alive cats or dead cats. We have. Oh, yes. yes. Well, here's one. Any violent rearrangement of feline matter is impermanent. Cartoon cats can be sliced, spayed, uh, splayed rather, although I'm sure it can be splayed <laughs> as well. Uh, accordion pleated, spindled or disassembled, but they cannot be destroyed. After a few moments of blinking self-pity, they reinflate, elongate, snap back or solidify. So I there think, you go. I think your first law there makes everybody think of Wiley Coyote and the second one very probably yeah. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> smacked in the face with a spade and things like that. Yeah. I wonder if there's some sort of subclause to one of the laws that involves uh, bongo drums. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Swiftly followed by a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good to know that you can't kill a cat in a cartoon. It will always come back some way or whatever. What if you killed it ten times in the cartoon? Maybe you're allowed nine. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like uh, Captain Jack in Torchwood. You know, he just comes back, he got exploded once, and then all the bits reassembled and grew that. Mm. So. If you don't know what Torchwood is, it's a spin-off series from Doctor Who, and crosswordy type people might like to have a go at working out why it's called Torchwood. Any more of those? I think I had one more, yes. Uh, okay, a spooky noise or an adversary's signature sound will introduce motion upward, usually to the cradle of a chandelier, the treetop, or the crest of a flagpole. Spooky noise. It's all very serious, I'm sure. Yes. I think I remember seeing a, a documentary about cartoon music. People like are, Carl Stalling and things like that. I'm sure you'd know, you'd know the names involved. Oh, but yeah, if, you, if you're watching a cartoon... You just sort of hear the the frantic music and it's all fun and manic and a bit silly. But if you stop to actually listen to the music in some classic Looney Tunes and MGM cartoons, it's incredibly mad and intense and frenetic and intricate orchestral stuff. And if you then think about the orchestra actually playing that stuff, how fast must the conductor's arms be going? Yeah, well, I mean, Carl Stalling, who did, who did the music for a lot of those old 30s, 40s cartoons, he was not only writing extremely complex orchestral music of his own, but he was interpolating bits of popular songs of the day and bits of well-known classical music as well, just to hit the beats and so on. And in film, if you write music that specifically hits the action beats of what's going on on the screen, that's called Mickey Mousing. <laughs> Well, that's all I've got on cartoon cats, I'm afraid. <laughs> or dogs. Uh, that's all right. We, we had cartoon dogs as well, we talked about in a previous episode. Bassets. Yes. Droopy and the like. Talking about talking about things we've talked about before. Hey, okay. listeners, we've got a new page on our website. It's an episode guide. So if you're if you happen to desperately need to remember what we were blathering about, in which particular episode, you can now go and look that up. I'm sure it'll prove absolutely invaluable to you all. Is there an entry on the episode guide for all the episodes where you've talked about the episode guide as well? Oh, oh. not yet. 
Oh, episodeception. Ah. <laughs> uh, do we want to return to uh, those favourite clues at this point? Yeah, explain your one to us, please, Dave. Okay, if you remember, folks, my choice was before the sign to stop, absolutely nothing is produced for eight letters. In this case, produced was the definition. The sign to stop was the red. Yes, the in the clue led directly to the in the answer. The red gives us six of our eight letters, which leaves only two for absolutely nothing to go before that, which must be F-A, as in Sweet Fanny Adams. Perhaps we'll talk about that in another episode. Anyway, F-A, the red, spells fathered, which is produced. Anyway, Boyd, what tickled your fancy in the grid? I looked at the answer, personal stereo. And that got me wondering, hmm... I mean, I know what a personal stereo is now, and I know when I think they started, but when did they really start? So, I thought the obvious place to start was probably with Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville, right, Dave? Oh, yeah, well, you know, him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because I'm sure you know him, because he's a bookseller, or was a bookseller, and a printer. Oh, yes. <laughs> Ha ha, I beat Dave to a printer reference. So in the 1850s, this chap was reading about the anatomy of the human ear. And this inspired him to think about maybe replicating that in some way. And he came up with an invention called the phonautograph, which was a device for recording sound in a visual format by using vibrations to move a bristle across a moving piece of paper, which was coated with lamp black. Uh, so a bit like a seismograph, really. Yeah, that, that kind of thing, if you imagine the, the picture of that. That was in 1857. Uh, and this was just recording an image of the sound. So there wasn't a playback mechanism. There wasn't a playback. Um, but 20 years later... A fellow called Charles Crow, or Cross, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, thought about reverse engineering the recording from the phone autograph trace right. to, to try and get a playback from it. But around the same time, Thomas Edison announced his little thing called the phonograph. So he thought, why bother? And I'm not sure it was actually ever dealt with. But leaping forward, in 2008... I was going to say, I bet somebody would now with computerised technology would be able to yeah. uh, do high, something with it. Yeah, some high quality scans of some of the earliest phone autograph recordings were analysed by audio researchers known as First Sounds. And they converted uh, some of these files back into actual playable audio a mere 150 years after they'd been laid down. So there was a, a snippet of the folk song Eau Claire de la Lune being sung, okay. and some lines from a, an obscure old play called Aminta. Okay. But, yeah, so the phone autograph, not really a personal stereo. So Bit of a what dead about, end, really. Yeah, so what about actual music players that were portable? Well, in 1896, the first gramophone was released. And I think we can pick, or probably picture one of these in our minds, a little box with a record player on top and a massive horn-shaped speaker coming out the top of it. That yeah, were, what, um, 
Very well, they did have portable models because they were wind up, clockwork powered, wound up. So you could actually take them around with you. I mean, they were, you know, it's it's the size there of a go. small case, but if you're on a fancy taking one out to a picnic, you could. Probably a lot of heavy metal, wasn't it? I think there's probably a fair bit in there. I picture them as wooden cases of the box, but yeah. I think there was. Oh, I think yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Dave got the joke. Appropriately went down like a left balloon, though, for you. I was uh, just going to say, I think the gramophone horn is the origin of the phrase put a sock in it. Oh, really? Yeah, that makes sense. In order to mute the sound if it was too loud. Hmm. Well, jumping forward quite a lot from there, in the 1950s, we get the transistor radio which made radios much more portable. It made them possible to be made much smaller. And they were powered by batteries. And I once saw a comparison of an old transistor radio to an early iPod. It was in the form of an advertisement for the radio. And it said, thousands of songs, endless choice, pocket size, long battery life. (laughs) And so, yeah, hadn't really gone that far. But that's transmission rather than playback. Yeah, it's not your so, choice as to what music you're getting. Yeah. So in 1963, Philips, Dutch company, I believe, invented the cassette tape player. And that was basically a miniaturization of the old reel-to-reel tape recorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this meant you could make your own mixtapes. <laughs> and they, they were pretty small, about the size of a medium-large book. And... Uh, they took C-sized batteries, though, which were a bit more expensive, so you had to be committed to take those around on your picnic with you. But why not? Cassette radio players, boomboxes, ghetto blasters. We probably think of those becoming popular in the late 70s, early 80s. But again, it was Philips who introduced the radio recorder in 1966. Early ones weren't that great, apparently, but uh, chrome tape and Dolby noise reduction soon improved them. And you could record stuff straight off the radio. It was amazing. Sitting there with your finger over the pause button, hoping to stop it before the DJ started blathering. (laughs) Yeah, no more patch leads or pointing your microphone at a speaker either. (laughs) But can you think of a revolutionary portable music player from the 1970s. From the 70s? Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking, was it a toy, maybe? Was it like a doll or something that played a song when you pulled a bit of string? Oh, that's an interesting thought to go down. I seem to remember there was a, a doll called Chatty Cathy that you could pull a string and it would speak some phrases back to you. But no, I'm talking about a, a music player. It's a really, really famous one. I, I thought maybe you were just having a very kind of quirky definition of music player together. No. And we're not merely talking about sort of portable record players. We're talking about something more no, specific than that. Smaller. Well, the CD player wasn't mm. until the eighties, so yeah. So before that, and you've already mentioned tape recorders. Yeah. So it's... things, things like the, the the Walkman and what have you. Aha! That's right. It's the stereo belt, patented by Andreas Pavel in 1977, after several years in development. He said the first time he pressed play on a prototype, he experienced a floating sensation as he watched the mountain snowfall, realising that his device could provide the means to multiply the aesthetic potential of any situation. 
So, <laughs> bit of a bit of a sales hyper then. Yeah, this device was an actual belt that you wore, and it had a cassette player attached to it, and a battery pack attached to it, and some headphones. Yeah. And he approached some companies to put it in production, but he faced quite a lot of rejection. And a quote from him was, they all said they didn't think people would be so crazy as to run around with headphones, that this was just a gadget, a useless gadget of a crazy nut. But this was a couple of years before Sony launched their Walkman in 1975. Hi, this is Void in the edit saying, Void, don't listen to him. It was 1979, not 1975. What an idiot. Thank you. The famous uh, miniaturised cassette player, Mm. which always seemed to be advertised by people on roller skates. So I don't know why they didn't call it the Rollerman rather than the Walkman, but there you go. And Andreas Pavel thought, hang on a minute. That's a bit below the belt. Hey! <laughs> yeah, he reckoned that this was more or less his invention. So he went into negotiations with them, legal proceedings, and he did get an initial payment of some royalties just for sales of the Walkman in Germany. But it dragged on through the courts for years and years, and various judges dismissed the scope of originality of his patent and didn't really think that, that Sony were infringing it with the Walkman. Oh. And I thought, yeah, I'm not sure he really had exactly the case for it, but happily for him, in 2004, so a long time later, they finally reached an out-of-court settlement, quote, in the low eight figures. So it's more than the inventor of the phone autograph ever got, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah yourself well. lucky. Yeah, yeah, very nice. So yeah, Pavel did all right out of his uh, not so famous stereo belt. In the end, in the end, yeah. yeah. And of course, in more recent times, we've had MP3 players and Apple iPod, and now everyone's phone is a personal stereo. Yeah. yeah, and in between all such things is the mini-disc, which came and went without hardly a ripple. That's one of those cases where the the quality was hyped as being its main selling point, but the convenience of other form factors won over, much yeah. like VHS versus Betamax. And yeah, everybody said, like that. quality? Who wants quality? <laughs> we want cheap. So, General, do you want to explain your clue to us now? So that's the uh, the tech gadget one, isn't it? Yeah, from one tech gadget to another. Yep. Tech gadget in this clue gives you iPad, and then Mini, perhaps, is just something which Mini is an example of, so dress, as in a mini dress. And then you just put them together, and you get IP address, uh, which is a tracking device. And yeah, I just thought that was a really neat clue. You know, we're all familiar with the phrase IP address now, but I'd never twigged before that it's got iPad right at the beginning. And I always like a clue that points out a bit of wordplay or the coincidence that's hiding in plain sight. Dave, what's your favourite word? What do you want to talk about? Well, at 8 Down, we had the word astray. The very first thing I did, as usual, was have a quick look at the etymology. It's one of those words that comes from old French, uh, in this case, estrayer. Ultimately, from the Latin extravagare. 
<laughs> which means, yes, it is related to extravagant. Ah, um, there you go. That led me to discover that we do have an English word to extravagate, <laughs> which means rather nicely to wander away, to go beyond the bounds of what's proper or reasonable, or to roam at will. I think those are all useful, and we should we should use that word. Uh, it sounds like a word that Bertie Wooster would accuse Jeeves of doing. <laughs> yes. Or Paxton. Yes, possibly. I'd love to go extravagating around with my Walkman on my belt. <laughs> yes, quite. So is um, that uh, related to the word vagrant as well, then? I suspect, yeah, yeah, Bagare is just going to be to, to walk, I suspect, or something like that, isn't it, I think? Hmm. Anyway, where I really wanted to go was, voiding the last episode, you were taking us geographically around the world with large land masses. Um, yes. Uh, I thought I'd go in the opposite direction and look at some land masses that were small, or possibly so small as to not exist. So I started off with Edward Brooke Hitching's fascinating book, The Phantom Atlas, The Greatest Myths, Lies and Blunders on Maps, which I heartily recommend. Oh, I've seen that and thought, that looks interesting. But, you know, too many books, too big a pile. I know, I know. Uh, but uh, you're right. Not as many words in a book of maps. Saying, <laughs> well, it's, it's, so. Thankfully, it's not just a book of maps, but it's a book about the history of maps and things like that. Um, we've basically got centuries of explorers either getting the size or the location of some real place wrong or just making somewhere up or the cartographers making somewhere up and subsequent people just taking them at their word and repeating their these erroneous locations sometimes until well into the 20th century when systematic aerial or even satellite um, mapping eventually caused people to say this little island that's been on our maps for donkey's years there's not there really is nothing there <laughs> so i'm gonna give you one example it's uh, oh is it in africa an island in the middle of africa no it's not oh. no it's uh, it's bermeja that's uh, my attempt at pronouncing that. It was B-E-R-M-E-J-A, which is a supposed island in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. It was first charted on a 1539 Mexican map off the north coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. So you fast forward to 1982. The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea... Mm -hmm. establishes that sovereign states with coastlines have special rights regarding use of marine resources up to a distance of 200 miles from their coast. Right. Uh, and this area is called an Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ. And outside of that is international waters. Now, you can imagine that there might be places where the geography of the coast and certain parts of the world might cause a little pocket of international water to be fully enclosed by the EEZs of two or more neighbouring countries, especially when you've yeah. got a, kind of a concave area of, of, uh, of coastline. And those so little... Presumably they split the, the boundary down the middle in those cases. Oh, well, if, if the distance is less than 200 miles, then you'll just split it down the middle, yeah. But if it's just over 200 miles, then you might get a little pocket of, of international water between oh, right. the two. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and those little pockets are called donut holes. <laughs> Why? Uh, and there are a couple of those in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's one that's entirely bounded by U.S. waters from the north and Mexican waters from the south. 
and there's another one that's got those two plus a little bit of um, Cuban waters to the east. So if this island of Bermeja existed, that would put another little blob of Mexican land territory in the Gulf. Ah. And then the Mexican EEZ would grow to fill up the donut hole. So they'd have, a, they'd have this bit that was otherwise international waters. Right. The only problem is it doesn't exist. It's not there. The most recent map to include it was the 1921 Geographic Atlas of the Mexican Republic. So in 1997, the US and Mexico were negotiating a treaty covering the waters of the Gulf. So the Mexicans sent out a Navy vessel to try and find this place that had been on their maps for 400 years. <laughs> and they had no luck. Now, the two countries signed the treaty in 2000, but the Mexicans really never lost hope of finding this island. The National Autonomous University of Mexico, they sent out a team of experts in 2009 and they carried out extensive sweeps, and they even scanned the area from the air. And their conclusion, as reported in the newspaper La Jornada, said, At the coordinates, there are no islands or features that can be identified as vestiges. Bermea Island does not exist! <laughs> so I was wondering if that 1921 map, being also a Mexican map, had some vested interest in keeping the myth alive but what? It's, it's obviously just still believed at the time i think so yeah mm. but uh, you know this day and age conspiracy theories still abound some of them suggest that the cia destroyed the island <laughs> maybe it's going out and shaving it off down below sea level somehow and one geographer from the university said We've encountered documents containing very precise descriptions of Bermeja's existence. On this basis, we firmly believe that the island did exist, but in another location. <laughs> so, well, we haven't found it, but it's it's just somewhere else, you know. The, it's Atlantis. Well, it's yeah. drifted across from the Pillars of I, Hercules all I the was, way across the Atlantic. I was so tempted to talk about Atlantis, but I thought, no, I better not. Um, on the other hand, the president of the Mexican Society of Geography said, Countries making maps in the 16th and 17th centuries published them with inaccuracies to prevent their enemies from using them. I'm not sure I follow the logic of that. We publish a map, you, kind of, you want it to be accurate so that you can use it, not make it inaccurate so that somebody else can't use it. <laughs> I suppose it works as long as you and everyone in your army knows which bits are and aren't. Oh, not real, yeah. So, yeah. See, all the islands, move them east by 35 miles. You know, <laughs> just have that all little scrap of paper. It's and then of Yeah. So, actually, I mean... Uh, unless, of course, this is another example of something we, we talked about, of oh, dictionaries yes. putting deliberate false entries in yes, to, like, as copyright traps. Yeah. Um, you do get that. Mount, mount weasels and, trap and, and, and trap streets and things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, mention of, oh, it was there, but somewhere else, put me in mind of the migratory island of San Serif. Ah, yes. But I think that's probably one for another time as well. Void, what about your clue? Um, I don't know that phrase. Trap streets? It, it's just like a fake street that's put on a map so that uh, somebody copies the map with the fake street. And then, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. 
then you know that they've so copied it is a, that. A mapping man weasel. Yes, it is yeah. exactly. No, yeah. there's a Doctor Who episode set in a trap street, which turns out to be a real street. I think, <laughs> or it might be the other way around. Yeah, I think there's certainly a one of Robert Rankin's novels has got uh, got trap streets that turn out to be like a hidden suburb or something. Yeah. So not very useful if you're making a map, but apparently very useful if you've got to make up a cool story that's <laughs> set somewhere that's yeah. ostensibly real. Yeah. Anywho, your clue. My clue was one across. In a war, they oddly fight, bringing up unrelated issues. Twelve letters. So in this clue, oddly is an anagram indicator, and we're looking for an anagram of a war they. And then in it, you need to put a word that means fight. And the word that means fight is bout. And something you can make with those letters is what a ery. So you end up with bout in the middle of that to give you what aboutery, which matches the definition of bringing up unrelated issues. Okay, uh, time for a quiz, I think. Hooray! So I've got three questions inspired by different parts of the crossroads. Cool. Um, question one uh, was inspired by 16 Down. Eurostar. And the question is this. Since 2007, the Eurostar has left from St Pancras International, but which station did it operate out of originally? I think I know this, but I have to go and fetch the memory from my brain. (laughs) I thought you were going to say I have to go and fetch a book to look it up in. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just need to wander around. It was Waterloo, wasn't it? It was Waterloo, yeah. So mm. the um, if you wanted to go to France, then you had to start off at a station named after uh, not exactly <laughs> harmonious period between England and France. Yes, I'm sure the French love that. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that a certain politician prominent in Britain at the moment would love to have deliberately chosen. Yeah. <laughs> I shall not dignify him by naming him. <laughs> Well, it might be out of date by the time this goes out anyway. <laughs> I doubt can, it. I hope. <laughs> okay, uh, question two was inspired by 8 Down, which was lost piece of Hockney art, safely mounted, uh, which had the answer astray. And uh, my question is this now. In 2016, David Hockney released a 500-page visual autobiography which measured 50 by 70 centimetres. What was it called? 50 by 70 centimetres. Would this have a connection with a word in a word in an answer? Another word in an answer. Um, I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, okay. Because I was thinking iPad. No, because he has been—he has a connection to iPads as well. um... Yeah, he's been recently doing a lot of art that was. Drawn on his iPad, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was the year that you said he did this? Uh, 2016. So that's that's recent enough that he could have been doing that. So I think it did have some, some of his iPad works in there. Yeah. 50 by 7. Is the size relevant? The size is very relevant, yeah. 5 <laughs> 7. It's, it's, not a, it's not a paper size. Not a standard. Right, so what is... It's quite big, really, isn't it? Yeah, for a... So... And how did you describe this artwork to us just now? Uh, it was called a visual autobiography, but it was really just a collection of his works with notes and things added. 
Was it? it, is it cool? Go on, Dave. Well, no, I was just going to say, does it relate in any way to some of his famous titles? I mean, he has titles like A Bigger Splash and things like that. It does indeed, yeah. Oh. So I was about to say, was it called Coffee Table? Referencing Coffee Table books. But now we've said that, was it called A Smaller Splash? Uh, no, you've got in the wrong direction, actually. It was called A Bigger Book. A Bigger <laughs> Book. Yeah, his famous painting, A Bigger Splash which I think was called that because it was a bigger splash than somebody else had previously done. Right. So, yeah, he's done the same trick with books. Um, I think the idea was that it's like a big enough book that you could appreciate the art in detail. But uh, if you fancy a copy and you've got a spare 3,500 quid lying around, you can uh, grab one. Oh, okay. Goodness me. But for your money, you do also get a wooden book stand to read it on as well. So. You can't say no than that, really, can you? How magnanimous. And finally, my third question was inspired by the clue, removing crap in the pipes is what a trainee plumber might do, which had the answer apprenticeship. And there's lots of associations you might take away from that clue. But I've thought of plumbers, uh, Mario and Luigi in particular. So Mario and Luigi made their live-action debut in 1994's Super Mario Brothers. And according to that film, what is the surname of the brothers? Is it not also Mario? Isn't he called Mario Mario? It is. Uh, yep, they're Mario Mario and Luigi Mario, at least according to that film. And that was so, Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. I think it was, yeah. Correct. Oh, wow, well done. Dennis Hooper as well. Is that his name? Dennis Hooper? Cooper? Hopper? Hopper. It's one of those. Dennis Hopper, Hopper was in um, Easy Rider and Blue, Blue Velvet. Velvet. Yeah, that's all I mean, yeah. yeah. He was also in Super Mario Brothers, so not sure what's a weirder film, Blue Velvet or Super <laughs> Mario <laughs> So, yeah, originally the creator of Mario, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, he said it was just kind of a joke in the film. And he said, just like Mickey Mouse doesn't really have a last name, Mario is really just Mario and Luigi is really just Luigi, which kind of threw me back because I would have thought Mickey Mouse does have a surname. Mouse. Mouse, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Ridiculous. I mean, that's why Minnie Mouse has the same name, isn't it? They're not siblings. I mean, you Uh, might say it's because they're mice, but I mean, who am I to suggest? Donald Duck's uncle is called Scrooge McDuck, isn't he? Yes. Not Scrooge Duck. This is true. Unless McDuck is his mother's maiden name. <laughs> be a hell of a coincidence. Well, you know, these Europeans, when they move over to America, they often change their surname, don't they? You know. That's true. It will have gone full circle, of course, because MacDuck means son of duck. So Scrooge MacDuck's predecessor would have been just a duck again. Yeah. <laughs> and Jessica um, Rabbit's only a rabbit by marriage. Cool. So, that's the quiz. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Dave did well on the points front in this episode. <laughs> Makes a change, doesn't it? It's, it's what happens when people don't ask us to estimate a number of something. <laughs> <laughs> How tall How... is Scrooge McDuck? <laughs> yeah, <In> millimeters. <laughs> How many piano tuners in the galaxy? <laughs> I recommend googling David Hockney book by the way, because he's not a tall guy to begin with, and standing next to his enormous book. He, uh, sorry, it looks like the book's normal size, and he's just a really tiny man. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll do that and stick a link in the blog. Okay, folks, I think just like an Arctic explorer doing his Christmas presents, we've got to wrap up now. 
Thanks for listening once again. Show notes will be in the usual place at offgrid.tlmb.net. You can tell us we're wonderful on Twitter, where I'm at Skirwingor. And I'm at the void TLMB. Or you can use the hashtag offgridpod on Twitter as well. Uh, you can say hi on the blog too. Uh, give us a review, rating, what have you. Uh, I've got a new crossword out as well. It's called White and it's on my blog, tlmb.net slash blog. General, got any recommendations for us? Yeah, uh, you might want to check out some crosswords on chameleoncrosswords.wordpress.com or maybe look at some puzzles on The Independent by Methuselah as well. Thank you very much. We'll keep an eye out for those. Thanks for helping us out once again. No problem. See you next time, folks. Bye-bye. That was Off Grid. Hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, I'm surprised you're still listening. But hey, thanks. Hi to our new listeners in Denmark and South Africa. Come on, South America. Where are you? Come on, South America. Anyway, yes, please give us a rating, a review, a subscribe. That'd be great. You get all our episodes sent straight to you without having to bother going to fetch them. Thanks to Gila for our crossword that we looked at today. And thanks to the Trudy, as ever, for our wonderful theme tune, Speedman. See you in a couple weeks, folks. Bye-bye. Uh, I don't think so. I didn't say my pin number, did I? Or... No, but you just did say the phrase pin number. Uh, yeah. <laughs>